Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. 
Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Today, we have a guy on who we had a couple weeks ago uh, that everyone was real interested in because we were talking about GPS data. So we got a bunch more GPS data stuff coming out. Today, we actually just dropped a Patreon-exclusive GPS video. Uh, so if you want access to that, breaking down a buck's movements day by day, uh, go check out our Patreon. But without further ado, we've got uh, Mr. Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge. How are you doing, man? Good. How are you guys? Excellent. Jacob, how are you? Doing well. Very excited for this episode. Bill, very excited to have you back on. And, of course, we got the Killadilla Michael Pike on here. Michael? What's up? Hey, man. It's going to be Killadilla. exciting. Hopefully, Michael's going to have a little more questions this week. I'll, I'll shut up a little bit <laughs> this episode. Um, but first off, I want to say everybody's listening right now, and also anyone watching, we're also filming this podcast as well. It hopefully will drop. Uh, hopefully planning on it dropping the same day as the actual uh, audio recording. Um, but make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Again, there's going to be a lot more of this content coming out throughout the fall, so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast um, so that you can check out this information as the months come uh, but Bill, very excited about this week's podcast. Uh, I, I know there's been, uh, we've had a lot of questions come in since the last time we had you on. A lot of people were very, very excited to kind of hear from your perspective of what you found with a lot of this GPS data uh, throughout the you know last six or so years of looking at it. Uh, one question I just want to kind of kick us off right off the top is last, last time we had you on, we talked a lot about Bucks cores and all this kind of stuff. And one quote that you said was that there's a pretty significant difference between what you see from deer in the South versus deer in the north when it comes to cores. Can you talk a little bit about that? Just for our listeners, we have, again, a large uh, range of listeners, and I think that would be very, very helpful for us to kind of break that down right off the bat. Yeah, so as it relates to buck core areas, and I will say thanks again for having me on, guys. And um, I, I actually probably had – I've been averaging probably two to three questions a day directly on Instagram, I think as it results to the podcast that we had together. So it's, it's pretty good. I enjoy doing that, and I enjoy answering those questions. People are reaching out, but as a result, or as it relates to buck core areas, um, the differences north to south. It also depends on where we're talking north to south. Right now, I'm kind of thinking in the the dichotomy of south of the Mason-Dixon, kind of where you guys are along the southeast, and then up into the Midwest. Um, it, it gets kind of different, and we can talk about it later as we get into like places like Pennsylvania. It depends on if we're talking a country or a straight like mountain. Uh, hill country but i guess one of the biggest differences is the size of the core areas they seem to be tighter especially as we get into the late fall and winter months um for bucks up into the midwest or like you know michigan up into minnesota north dakota south dakota they seem to be much tighter up there versus the south where they can get pretty depending on the amount of pressure they can get larger than than what you might see up there but then also the amount of times we kind of talked about this prior to the podcast and maybe it's it's a whole nother podcast that we could talk about but there seem to be more i guess what i would call four areas throughout the year and again like for people who didn't listen to the first podcast i'll say it again now i'm not a biologist i don't pretend to be i can only say what i see in the data and but what it seems to be like in the south is there can be bucks that have four or five or six areas throughout the year that they'll call home. Whereas as you head north, it can get into like three or two areas or even one or two areas where they're calling home in an area, especially as they get older and they get more mature. 
So I guess that would be one of the biggest things. Oh, I've got a visitor. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, you're good. <laughs> oh, thank you. My daughter just brought me a beer. <laughs> thank you, honey. Go daughter. So, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. Um, so as you get north and, you know, I think there are many reasons for this. Again, I'm not a biologist. I feel like I have to keep saying that because I'm constantly talking to people who are much smarter than I am. So when I bring them these questions or when I see these observations, I'll have like one presupposition about the reasons why things are happening. Then they'll, you know, supply me with a totally different reason why it's actually happening or how they can test why these things are happening. But to me right now, and as I talk to people, one of the reasons I think seems to be is because there's there are just less areas available in the north with cover that's consistent for a whitetail to make them feel safe. So whereas in the south, there might be, you know, like we said, two, three, four, five, six areas where a buck can feel safe. So if they get blown out of one area, they've got another place to go to. They can they can seem to be more mobile in the north. It's kind of like once they found that place, um, it's they, they found it for a reason and there's not a lot of cover, especially as you get late into the season. Whereas you juxtapose that with the South where they could be more cover. Um, again, um, this is not by any means a, a scientific finding of mine or something I can say is set in stone. There's just another thing where as I look at the GPS data and I'm circling these core areas and we kind of talked about it in the last episode, how we break down like a core area versus like the full range. It seems like they move a lot more around the map in the South than they do versus the North. Um, and I've also read other scientific studies that kind of seem to back that up, but none of them really get into the reason why. But it's kind of, I guess, one of the first things that sticks out to me is just how many more places are available in the south than there are in the north for a lot of reasons, right? There's vegetation is held in the south for much longer into the season or year round um, versus in the north where you can't find a leaf on the tree after like, you know, November 5th, you know, down trees or whatever. It's like once they have that type of cover, that, that's it. And then the other thing, I guess, or the last thing I should say about the South is, as I've walked the areas where I know bucks are calling, you know, this is, you know, I go and look at these between three and six areas that, that bucks are calling home. What I'm seeing there is there's always a ton of ground growth, um, whereas that's not always the case in the North. It's like, I'll go to a place in the North and I'll be like, oh, there are a lot of downed trees or like, a lot of trees have died somewhere. There's a hillside or something where there's a lot of ground cover and those bucks like to bed in, in front of those trees that are falling on the ground. And then, you know, if you're lucky and you're staying still, you might see some like antlers. Whereas in the south, I'm seeing where the sunlight can hit the ground. Like basically, if you're scouting and you're looking out on the on, if you are given some GPS data or if you guys were, if people were to go and search these areas, you guys are seeing where the bucks are spending a lot of the time there's going to be some kind of places there's going to be some kind of place where the sun is hitting the ground there's a lot of ground growth that provides that again that cover that kind of is there for them parentally and so when i'm when i'm looking at both of these areas and i actually just went back to north dakota went back home to north dakota and i went to a place in minnesota and a place in north dakota where i had deer data from and i had ran cameras just to kind of like back up what i was looking at and there's some ground growth during the early part of the season, but then by the end of the season, it's all bare there. But what there is, is there's a lot of down branches, a lot of down trees. So there are things on the ground to obstruct the buck's view. I'm sorry, to obstruct a hunter's view of the buck. And if the buck is staying still enough, it'd probably be very difficult to see them there. 
but it's nothing compared to the south where when i'm walking in one of these places it's like bush all over the ground and if you're not up high enough and you're not looking directly down on where these deer are they're either on the bed of it or on the i'm sorry on the end of it or right on the inside of it and it's just it would be very difficult to see them on the ground and they're usually backed up to something that's even thicker that you wouldn't even dream of getting into so there are all kinds of different types of growths that happen so those are kind of like again my observ observational data based on the gps data me getting on the ground and looking at these areas those kind of but but the common thread there i guess is they're looking for as much ground cover as they can that still helps them use the wind and their vision which we kind of talked about before and i think was even a point of contention for us which is good because right after our last podcast i went back and was like double checking like my observations and i'm, I'm still kind of wedded or married to the observation that even in the thickest areas they're choosing areas where they can still see more than you would be able to on any part of that property may not be a lot, but it's more than these other areas. And then I think the other thing, this sounds kind of silly, but I guess I should say it. I'm an open book when it comes to this stuff and I try to share as much as possible. It's like, you kind of have to get to the deer level whenever you're looking. Like people will go in and look at something like myself, I'm almost 6'2". So like when I'm looking around, I'm seeing quite a bit. But then when I get down to like where a deer's eye level is and I'm looking around and I'm seeing what they see, and then I'm putting my head at that level. Like one thing I like to do is I will carry a walking stick with me that is roughly the height of a deer. And then I'll stick a baseball cap on it and I'll stick it where I think the deer are bedding. And then I'll go look from somewhere else, to try to get an idea. It's like, they're very well picked. It's as if they know, um, again, it could be that they're not getting bothered and they're not getting pressured because people aren't seeing them. And that's a result of hunters walking right past them or them having no problems or whatever. But another thing I do, it's silly, is you know I have this walking stick that's I think it's at like four feet or four feet, six inches or something like that, or five foot or something like that, which is cut right at like, you know, a mature buck's eye level, you know, right in that four foot area. I'll stick a base. I'll stick it right where I think they're bedding and I'll stick a baseball hat on the top and I'll walk around and just kind of get a look. And you'd be surprised how invisible that baseball cap gets, even when they're like blaze orange or whatever, just based on where these deer spend their time. So even when they're standing up and looking around, it's just difficult to see them. So none of this is happening by accident, I guess is the way I'll, I'll put a bow on that so we can move on. Cause again, it's something I could talk about all day long. Well, I've got two questions and I'll, I'll kind of shut up. I, don't, I know Mike's got a bunch in this last episode. <laughs> and he's still looking. Yeah. And so Mike, Mike, hold on before we go anywhere, Mike, you would call, were you, had you called into a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. So, so right now I'm extremely tired. So if people are thinking like, Oh, Bill Thompson's acting loopy. It's because I haven't slept a lot in the last three days. I've been spending a lot of time on the application, but then I had been drinking <laughs> and, and um, like after the podcast, I had people DMing me like, Hey, you know, that was Mike from the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> no clue. We, we never got to. Other, other guys were chastising me on Instagram. They're like, Hey, you had Mike calling in you just treated him like another listener we uh we never like, i had no idea we, <laughs> offer you we never got to Can clarify me and uh yeah me and andrew were standing here we were putting so we were putting stuff together and i was like um jacob jacob text and he said hey he said hey they're on uh the podcast and i was like well i'm gonna call in i was like we're setting stuff up we're waiting on him to get here and so i was like i'll call in and i was like you know i'll see what it's all about so we started listening and there's like there's no callers on the line. I was like, well, I'll call. And and so I went ahead and called. And um, <laughs> it, it sounded like y'all are having a really good time, by the way. <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, but uh, anyways, I went golfing earlier that day and started drinking early. Yeah, and then I told him I was like, "Hey, man, I probably shouldn't be doing a podcast." He's like, "No, this is the perfect time to do a podcast." <laughs> <laughs> like, anyway, yeah. So I just got there and kept the ball rolling. So I don't know who it was, but they said, uh, "Have you ever heard of the Southern Outdoorsman?" And I, I died, and I was, I was gonna try to tell you, but y- y'all kept on going, and I was like, I couldn't find a space to to fit in to tell you, so we just let it. <laughs> let it ride but it was Dude, it was pretty like, funny hey, idiot you were talking to me like three nights ago <laughs> yeah oh we yeah. got a good laugh out of it yeah though. it was worth it yeah it was... i was dying afterwards i was like mike seemed like a humble guy i'm sure he will laugh in his back yeah no was, uh... no yeah it, uh, <laughs> that kind of stuff doesn't bother me yeah okay your t-shirts in the mail don't worry about it uh, I'll get you one. we've got some good ones coming out after the podcast i have to show you guys some of the stuff that we've designed we've got some yep. good uh some good stuff coming out. Sorry, right, well, sorry. Gonna, I had to get that out of the way. Yeah, I'm gonna let Jacob good. take over. This is his podcast, podcast number two. So, <laughs> so Bill, one thing that you just mentioned about uh, kind of from the north to the south is the the number of cores later in the season and how you know the north it really kind of necks down to just maybe a couple versus in the south they may have a you know four or five six different areas they might be spending a lot of time in does that also translate to beds as well or do they still have that normal six to twelve beds even though that they only have maybe two cores they're bouncing from yeah no they'll still have an amount and it varies it's really a personality thing among bucks from what i can see in the data so far they will still have inside of that one core area They'll be between, and, and and again, this is why I love doing this podcast with you guys because that's not something I've thought about counting. They'll still be between, I guess a normal day would be between five and fifteen changes in a day, a given day. You know, the lower number is five, the, the higher number is fifteen, um, or even I've even seen twenty. And like I kind of talked about before, it's I think it's like an itch for them. Whereas most of like the one and a half, two and a half year old bucks are out there in the field at 2.30, 2.45 p.m. They are just moving more, but they're sticking in those areas. So I, I don't, again, I'm sorry, I don't have a definitive answer on that, but they still are moving a lot within those core areas or they can be. The propensity is for them to move a lot in those core areas, especially when the outfitter is doing something like predicting high amounts of movement in the day. It, it, it's quite accurate, quite good at doing that. And, and that's when we see like the Again, it's proportionate based on the personality of the buck. Like if a buck's high number is five, maybe he only changes one, two, three times in a day or not in a day, in an area for for the core area. Maybe it's six to seven that day. But then some bucks, it's like I've seen as many as 20 where they're just like constantly getting up and moving and voiding and you know pooping and then bedding 10, 15 yards away and then doing it again. And, and that's all on our data, which has only got, you know, one to three meter resolution. So it could be more or less than that. And the GPS is just kind of thrown off because of um, the foliage or whatever. But definitely it's it's happening a lot in those core areas, um, especially when the movement is high. This podcast is supported by Hunting Exchange. In this day and age, we all know it is a struggle to sell hunting equipment on large social media platforms. And that's where Hunting Exchange steps in. Hunting Exchange is an app for iOS and Android built by Sears Hunters that gives you a one-stop shop to buy and sell your hunting gear. Whether you're looking to sell your bow, broadheads, 
technical apparel, stands or saddles, or anything in between, this secure platform allows you to buy and sell gear with confidence. As a buyer, each dollar you spend is insured by PayPal, and as a seller, there are no hidden charges like other platforms, and listing items is also free. Gone are the days of having listings removed from Facebook and worrying about being banned and removed from groups for wanting to sell something as simple as your bow or knives. So head on over to the App Store or Google Play and experience a new hassle-free way to buy and sell hunting gear by downloading the Hunting Exchange app today. Silence your setup and shave weight with the Hasmore Silent Seat. The Hasmore Silent Seat is a hammock-style seat designed to replace your climber's bulky factory seat. We all know how important it is to stay silent when you're moving in on that weary old buck in bow season. These seats are great for bow hunters. Not only do they make climbing quieter and easier, but the seat silently slides back when you stand to shoot. These are extremely comfortable and you will not miss your loud and bulky factory seat. Check out the link in the description or go to hasmore.net and use the code SO15 for 15% off. One of my other questions that I'm going to let Mike take over um, is canopy cover. How much does canopy cover play a factor when it comes to core areas? And also, like, potential bedding locations. You've mentioned canopy a little bit, but, I mean, what have you noticed? And I guess maybe the GPS won't really show that. It's a lot more boots on the ground. But, you know, I don't know if you have any. Yeah, I mean, I've been in the areas where the sun, where, where at the same time of the year, it's not all of them, of course. But, again, it's like if the sun's hitting the ground and there's vegetation growing on the ground, you're going to see more bucks bedding in that area. Versus does where they seem to get, they aren't, the does, I'll be honest. I really can't figure out doe bedding. And I think it's because there's so many of them. Um, they can really just pick an area where they have good visibility and they're not super concerned with the perfect wind or the perfect this or that. It's just they bed in a circle. Everyone's looking everywhere. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to spot and stock, especially late season, like January. I'll see like, you know, five or six does and some babies on a hillside somewhere. And I'll be like, all right, nothing's happening. I'm going to get in and try to spot and stock them. It's like they've chosen these areas just because they're they're all in a circle and they're really difficult to get to. So um, but from a buck perspective, if you if the ground is clear and you can see a long ways, the odds are unless these are, you know, unless you're hunting your pets, you're going to have a hard time seeing bucks in these areas. It's just like it's just it's always there is always understory and ground growth. And that what that means is a lack of canopy or there's been some kind of, you know, somebody's done a clear cut or for some reason the trees don't grow high there and the sunlight's allowed to hit the ground. I mean, it's just, I, I don't even know. And again, it's something I should start cataloging as I'm doing this. I've actually thought about getting some of our pro staff doing it with me, like sending them the GPS locations of where I know like perennial bedding is for, for, for mature bucks, but getting in there and actually looking at the ground because everywhere I go, there's always ground growth. It's almost, it's, it's like one of the biggest, we didn't even talk about it last time, but like ground growth is like one of the things where it's, if I get into an area, I've heard someone else mention on another podcast and I wish I could, it stuck with me because I heard it and I didn't know quite what the guy was talking about. And then when I started actually getting into these areas where we have GPS data, it made sense for me. But I, I believe the phrase he used was like, if I'm in the pretty woods, I basically know I'm not going to see any deer. Like if it looks nice, and I don't remember who this was, but it was like, if I feel good and I have a lot of sight, I have a lot of visibility and I can see a long ways and it's very pretty and there's not, there's leaves all over the ground and stuff. He's like, I know I'm not seeing any bucks in it. I maybe we'll see some does. And that, 
seems to be like, again, one of those rules that is true is when I get into these areas where bucks are spending a lot of their daylight hours, it's the sunlight's hitting the ground. There's things growing up from the ground. There's a lot of cover and food for them. And, and, you know, they're on an edge of that in one way or another. So since we're talking about bedding, our core areas, core areas and bedding, uh, what, what about bedding elevation? Have you noticed like it, what what is the influence in where they're bedded at? Is it more like wind and thermals? Is it something else? Is it time of day? Like what? Yeah, so that's that's time of season, and that's pressure. You know what we got to start doing is, I just need to give you I, I need to get you guys some NDA signs so we can all look at this together, because there are things where <clears throat> early season when there's a ton of pressure, I'm seeing them bed low. In areas where I know that like there's a, there's because what I'm doing is I'm looking at where people are logging their sits on lands and I will see them bed low. And then every once in a while, I'll see them in that like top third. I never see them in that like two thirds. You know what I'm saying? I never see, I very rarely, I'm going to say never only because I can't think of it. I'm sure I can find something. And I'm sure someone's going to say something like, oh no, that's BS. I've seen it. But I never see deer halfway up elevation. Like if you have a, a, a ridge that's at like, you know, 1200 feet and the bottom's at zero, I don't ever see deer at six. It's just, it's just something I've never, I've also never seen deer at like three. You know what I'm saying? They're never in there. They're always like nine to 12 or they're in the bottom. Like, and that is just, it, that's a constant. And, and again, I think that has to do with um, thermal cover or the, you know, taking advantage of thermals and having the sight lines to see everything. Because another thing, I, and I talked about it before, and I don't want to rehash a lot, but, you know, if people listen to the past episode, I always talked about too, is when they are t- in that top third, they're usually able to see other hot pockets of deer activity. Like when, I, when, I'm on a, when I'm in a very mature bucks area where I'm in the top third, I'm also able to see like a scrape. I'm able to see some kind of deer funnel or I'm able to see an agricultural field or a funnel or something. There, there's more than just the, the wind and the top third is not just the reason that they're there. There's, there has to be some, it seems to me there needs to be more than that in order for a five, six, seven year old buck to spend his day that hours in an area. So when you mentioned that the, uh, the bucks due to pressure would be bedding in the bottom, is that when the roads are on the top and your access is on the top? Is it kind of like the exact opposite if, your access is from the bottom, they're going to be up on the top or? Another great question that I wish I had looked into before this podcast. I'm sorry, guys. It's all good. I, I would love to be the guy who comes here with all the answers, but I also wouldn't be an honest broker if I said that I've looked at roads. I will say, here's something I can tell you about roads. I've never seen, so there's two, how can I say this and be responsible? They are either right off of roads where you would never think bucks will be, or they're 600 plus yards away from roads. It's never like, I say never, it shouldn't be, I shouldn't say that. The propensity of what I've seen is they're either in this foolish area where you're thinking to yourself, the only reason this buck is betting here is because he's never smelled a human here because no human would ever think that a buck would be there. So in other words, he's responding to the pressure in the environment and he's betting in a place. I always talk about this deer in Alabama that was I've talked about on a million podcasts. But it's worth repeating again. It was bedding in a drainage ditch that was off of like where a culvert fed, where there was the one road going to the parking lot. And he had bed on the 
the distant side of that ridge in this drainage where he could see the parking lot. And that deer was there for, I think, five or six years before someone finally killed it during the rut. And I'm not saying he was betting there because he could see the parking lot. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is he was betting an area where no one ever, no one ever in their life would think that that deer would be bedded right there. He's like within a hundred yards of where all of the activity is. Now the the majority, the, the most of the wind was going over his back. Then he's able to see what was in front of him. So again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't like getting into the talking about what the deer is seeing. What I can say is, without a, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is in that area he never smelled another human. He was never pushed out of that area. He never had problems. It was a drainage, so I'm sure there was lots of growth in the bottom of that thing. There's probably lots of food and, you know, water, especially in the south of Alabama where it's extremely hot, where he could go down there and drink and have access to all of those things. So for me, it's like you can have the perfect place on that property, but if, you know, humans all, it's kind of, I kind of, I'll relate it this way. Saddles were probably a stellar place to hunt 15 years ago, and bucks were probably using saddles all the time. But then when some of these great books came out, which are behind me, which I love, that I've read a million times, like this book right here books. is a book. This is my third copy of this book. Yep. I've read this book I don't know how many times, right? It's like 15 years ago or whatever it was. Maybe it was 20 years ago. Brad Herndon, I think is his name, Yep. wrote this Mapping Trophy Bucks, right? But then 20 years ago, the jig was up on saddles. It's like this guy could take bucks like this from a saddle. But then the moment everybody and their mother figured out that a saddle was a thing that you could find on a map and see pretty easily, and you didn't even need to be that versed in topographic features, you could just look at two high points and be like, oh, there's a saddle. Then everybody and their mother started sitting saddles. And then what does the mature buck do? He smells a person in a saddle, and now he's done with saddles. He's not doing it anymore. So what I see in the GPS data is, Bucks will bed near saddles where they can see into the saddles or they can win the saddle, but they don't participate or use it. They're watching all the idiots and they're waiting for a doe to come through there. That's maybe hot, but they're not bedding near it. And I think it's the same thing with when I talk about like these crazy spots and I've heard other, you know, podcasters and personalities talk about it. Like, Hey, check these crazy spots where you'd never think there would be a deer or I think there was even like a hunting public video a couple of years ago where it was a road. They're right off of a road where it was like where two like low points came together and they were seeing bucks just like skirting across it quickly all day long, you know, and it was just because it was so obvious and, and no one thought that that would be a spot. So they sat there and they had great success there. I think that's the case. It's just, if, if, if it's a, if it's an overlooked spot and I don't even know where we started on this question, but, what is these overlooked spots that they just don't smell humans in it instantly become safe until they smell a human in there. And, and, and so don't discount. And I would say again, and I think I said this last time, but if I didn't, I'll make sure I see it now. This occurs 5% of the time in the data where, where I will see like a, a good buck or a decent buck in an area where I think he has no business. So I'm not saying it's a rule that's going to happen every time. I had somebody message me about that, and they wanted to clarify: was that just big bucks, or is that deer in general? The, the, so it can be deer in general as well, but like the really ostentatious ones, where I think the insane ones are always seem to be bucks. Like the ones where I'm like, this is stupid that I'm seeing a buck here, 
Like, like they've darted this deer. I, I can see what his antlers look like. I see how large he is, especially in South Alabama. I think this was a 145 inch deer. Like what would be a trophy for anyone. And he is, well, it's a trophy anywhere. 145 inch deer is a trophy anywhere. But in this place in Alabama, as I understood it, he would have been like the equivalent of a 180 inch buck up in like Minnesota. And it just, it, you just, I laugh every time I think about it because it's just, now, now I've seen deer in other crazy places where you're like, oh, I wouldn't expect to see deer there. Or that's kind of crazy. Or, hey, that's funny. And you kind of chuckle to yourself. But it's these crazy, insane ones where I'm like, if you were to show me on a map, hey, Bill Thompson, where is there not a deer on this property? Like, it would be one of the first places I would point. And I'd say, well, you're not going to see deer here. Too many people, too much talking, too much clanging of tree stands, too many vehicles, too much in and out traffic. And my, meanwhile, he's there the whole time. One thing that you brought up a second ago that kind of caught my attention, and you mentioned it last time, and I forgot to ask about it, but when you talk about mature bucks not using saddles like other deer, uh, I mean, what does that look like? I mean, what do they do? Are they purposefully avoiding saddles and, like, just going over the high points, like going right over the top of a ridge? Like, how does that change how they're using the landscape? Yeah, so this is, like, another interpretive scheme that I have to engage in. I have to, like, kind of guess what I think is going on. I think there are two things going on. And again, guys, like I really feel like I have the premises with, I just, I can tell you what I see. And then I want people to kind of draw their own conclusions. I'm going to talk about my conclusions for the entertainment part of this, but I think people really should get into this and look at this on their own. And I feel like I keep doing that, but it's just because I don't want to become a deer guru. Like that is not what I, I don't, um, I've seen too much as it, as it relates to deer to try to fancy myself as a deer guru, right? Like when you get these people who are like, deer are going to be doing this or deer are going to be doing this or here's what deer do. It's like, no, I've seen enough GPS caller data to say we can only make guesses about what this deer is doing. And, and here are some of the crazy things that I like to talk about and share with people. And, and if anyone were to take anything from everything that I talk about, it would be scout your asses off and and like and don't discount anything like remove presuppositions get rid of that like top third thing right um or get rid of you know whatever you have so as it relates to the saddles i see a lot of two and a half year old bucks using saddles um i see a lot of does using saddles and even more than walking through them they'll just use them to skirt you know the downwind side of them two and a half year old deer. But what I will see is if there's an adjacent high point or um, a downwind adjacent high point that you can see that saddle from, that's where you will find a big buck. Um, so like get into that saddle and then look around and see like, okay, what else can I see in the, from this area? Or then look up the primary wind and say, what, what could I wind that's walking through this area? And then kind of narrow that all down on a map and then go look at where all that leads to. And then when you look at where all that leads to, you're probably on to something more because the buck is trying to do the same thing that we're trying to do. And that is gain intel on the area without risking his neck. And how does he do that? This podcast is supported by Mark's Outdoors. 
If you're from around Birmingham, you know of a, a staple in the hunting community here, and that would be Mark's Outdoors. They've been in business in the same location for over 40 years, family-owned and operated, and they have a reputation for being one of the best bow shops in the southeast. As we inch closer and closer to deer season, if you haven't already, it's time to dust off that bow and make sure that she's ready to roll for this hunting season. Go stop by Mark's Outdoors and check out their archery counter with Mark and Robbie, two guys I've known for years, excellent bow techs. They've worked on my bow since I started bow hunting. They got all the knowledge and accessories that you need to get ready to rock for this bow season. While you're in there, also make sure you check out their gun counter. They got a ton of nice rifles for everything from AR platforms to nice deer rifles and a bunch of nice shotguns as well. They also have one of the best knife selections in Alabama. I mean, really nice stuff. All kinds of custom knives in there and their ammo selection is just unbeatable as well. We're thrilled to have Mark's Outdoors on board and we thank them for supporting the podcast. Now we're going to ask you guys to go support them. That's one of the things that I heard on the Hunting Beast uh, a lot was they don't like to be in those confined areas like where, you know, they're forced to go through a certain spot that's real tight um, just because they're, I guess, inherently more dangerous. Um, I think also it's just they don't want to – I think I think about this like I think about people. Like I'm a very disagreeable person in that I don't tolerate – I don't suffer fools well. I'm intolerant. Not intolerant of like, you know, not intolerant like your grandfather's might have been intolerant. My grandfather was intolerant. But I mean, intolerant is just like, I have four friends and like four people that I will spend time around. And that's probably how I will spend the rest of my life. And it's been the same four guys. Like my best friend I have right now, him and I went through combat together. We did the ground invasion together. We've, we've been there and seen it. And it's just, he's my guy, my friend for the rest of my life. And most people I, I don't have a lot of time for and what I mean by that is like I'm very disagreeable by nature. In fact, I thrive on, I love conflict. It's actually one of my favorite things. And I think about bucks in the same way in that they just don't want to be around other deer, especially like the big, the ones that get big and old are, they're not big. So they're not big and old because they don't want to spend time around deer. They are big and old because they're disagreeable and, or I'm sorry, I said that wrong. They're not big and old because it's what the way they are. They got big and old because they're not spending time around other deer. They're just not, it's again, I think I talked about it before, but there's just seems to be this tick at like two and a half or three and a half years old where there's a mental maturity that happens and they just separate themselves from the rest of the herd. And then that is what allows them to get large. Meanwhile, the ones that are around the herd and following and going around kind of like the sheep, right? Those are the first ones to get narrow in the boiler room. Meanwhile, it's the one that can't tolerate the other ones that is never around the other ones because people want to see deer. And that's another thing. And this kind of guys, we could have a whole other podcast on this. If you want to get into an area and kill the top 2% or 3% of the deer in that area, like trophy from age, first age, then inches, get used to seeing nothing. Like the majority of your season should be like, I'm not, I, I have been hunting hard and diligently and with discipline. Like if you guys like, you guys should talk to Andy May about this because him and I have said this and, and, and he, when I said this to him, he was like, you're one of the few people that have echoed this sentiment. And the sentiment was if you're trying to kill the 170 inch deer on this property, get your, get used to seeing none of the other deer on this property. And if you don't have the stomach for that and you just want to see deer and that is, it's like a mental petting, like, oh, I'm seeing, I saw some good deer today. I 
saw a deer. And I was like, okay, congratulations. You're not going to see that big one, that Boone Crockett deer you're trying to kill. He might be near those other deer one or two times this year. Otherwise, he's off on his own doing his own thing. And so when I start, if I get honest, if I am going after a truly mature animal, especially in the last two years, and I get on stand and I'm seeing two and a half, three and a half year old deer and doe, I'm like, oh, I'm in the wrong spot. This is not where I need to be. And, and like last year on the hoof, if I wasn't hunting for doe, when I was actually hunting for buck, I would say I probably saw six deer last year within 40 or 45 cents. Now, if I'm hunting doe and I'm focusing on doe bedding areas, I'm seeing deer all day long. But when I'm actually going after like the trophy class, like when I get a picture of some, you know, donkey in a, in a public land area, I'm not comfortable when I start seeing other deer because I automatically know I'm in the wrong spot. So, Bill, if that makes sense. yeah, absolutely. It's actually kind of funny. So, episode uh, 263 was with a uh, an old-timer gentleman that's uh, been on the podcast a couple times, Mr. Tony Myers, and he's from Alabama. Uh, Tony talks about the exact same thing. Uh, he's a, just an old-school bow hunter, um, and he's killed multiple record book bucks in Alabama, one being a, a mid-170s buck off public land in Alabama. Um, and it's the exact same thing. He's like, if you're trying to target those mature bucks, those upper echelon bucks, you can't be hunting where all the deer signs at because that's not where that big boy is going to be at, yeah. especially when he's six, seven, eight years old. He's and he not- said they almost hang around the edges of where most of the deer are hanging out. I mean, you exactly. Know, the fringes. He's on no, the that's fringe. Precise. That's, that's 100% correct. They are getting in areas where they can smell and see those deer out and figure out what's going on, but they're not, they're not around them. They're not participating with them. It's just like the outlier. Like I, I always make the joke, but it's like the, it's like the Clint Eastwood of deer. You know, he you don't expect to see, you know, you see Clint Eastwood. My, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Outlaw Josie Wales. He's not going to be in the saloon with everybody cutting it up at 10 p.m., acting a fool and drinking whiskey. Like if you wanted to, if you wanted, if you were an old West gunslinger and you wanted to go kill someone in that town, 95% of the people are going to be in this saloon at this night, at this time. And if you want to kill that person, you go in there and do it. But if you want to call kill Josie, he is at a fire somewhere outside of town by himself eating something or cooking something over the campfire he just killed. He's out there with the Indian, yeah. the old Indian guy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, the old Indian guy, exactly. He's not in the saloon. So it's the same, it's the exact same thing, guys. It's really the exact same thing. Again, it's a, a person that doesn't suffer fools, doesn't tolerate ineptitude. I'm not saying this is what the deer are doing. All I'm saying is, and I said it before, and I'll say it again, it's a good heuristic for a human to understand how to look at deer. I'm not saying that's not what's happening. Again, I'm just saying it's a good, it's a good training device to like, okay, if I have access to this property, where am I going to see the majority of deer if I need to get meat in the freezer? And then where am I going to see ninja deer? And when you can start to conceptualize and understand that, and then accept that it's going to be 20 or 25 sits and you might get a glimpse of an antler or an ear flicker of him once or twice before he's right in front of you and you stick an arrow in the boiling room. Like that, that's, that needs to be your season. One thing that you said on last week's or last episode we had you on, which was a couple of weeks ago, um, was, you know, on some of these really mature bucks that you might have six days that you can kill them out of the year. Look at the GPS study. 
and we had some guys, uh, some some very experienced, uh, you know, big buck killers that we've interviewed on podcasts. Kind of, actually, a couple of them texted me, and they're like, "Dude, that sounds spot on from what I've personally seen." It's like you may have trail cameras out, or you know he's in the area, but there's only like a small window of time that you can really kill him when he's truly leaving that little area and you can hunt the fringes and be able to get him killed and kind of hunt the edge of that egg of that core area um, without getting, you know, seen, smelt, or busted. Um, so I find that very interesting. But, it's, again, it's kind of interesting, too, you know, hearing guys like, you know, uh, Tony Myers from episode 263, again, hitting on the same stuff that he's been doing since the mid-'70s. You know, if you're wanting to target those big, mature bucks, like the upper echelon bucks, you can't be hunting over just general deer sign, like feed sign and stuff like that because the likelihood you're going to catch that buck coming in there during legal hours is probably not very good but like you said and like uh tony meyer said you know those fringes is where you'll find that buck and that's what he did talking about killing the ones like the mid 170 buck along with a bunch of he's got a bunch of deer from like you know mid 40s up uh, that he's killing public land in alabama um and it's it's just that thing it's like you got to think outside the box and stay away from the the general sign but the problem is one thing he said too now you probably can agree to this as well is when you hunt, if you're hunting for that kind of buck, it's like hunting a different animal. It's it's not like you're hunting deer. You're hunting a mature buck. It's totally different from everything else out there in the woods. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, and again, I, I like analogies because I'm a blunt instrument, and I and I it takes a lot for me to understand things unless I'm seeing it for myself. But it's like, if you want to kill a basketball player, just show up to a basketball game. Okay, now, but what do I need to do if I want to kill LeBron James or Michael Jordan? You can't just show up to a basketball game to do that. You need to find the basketball game where they are participating at, right? You need to get at the higher echelon, that top level, right? Now you need to find out where the Madison Square Garden is. Where do these old brutes compete where you might expect to see, you know, a deer of that caliber that we're talking about? And again, it's just, it's just, you know, I break my season up like this, and this is what works well for me is, Early in the season, I'm trying to put some dough meat in the freezer. And I guess it's just to polish my own ego or to make me feel good about myself. And maybe I might try to, you know, if I can pattern a mature buck early season with no expectation of seeing him, get some meat in the freezer, get my confidence level up. And then I start hunting mature bucks where I am expecting and I and I, I will go back and I, and I pity people who don't have this as a tool for themselves because I certainly do it. When I've when I'm on like sixth or seventh hunt of seeing nothing, I'll go back to the deer data and like mentally pet and reassure myself. Like I'll look at like a seven, eight, nine, ten year old buck and, and then be like, Oh yeah, this is why you're not seeing him. Like watch him move throughout this area and watch how he acts in this area. Like you're doing everything right, Bill. <laughs> just just keep it going and, and eventually you'll see that deer, right? Because it's really easy to beat yourself up. And lose your self-confidence and, and and kind of lose hope. But then I'll go back and I'll look at that data and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely 1,000% the reason why I'm not seeing this deer. All right. So we're ready now? <laughs> All right. So we're, we're ready to rock and roll now. Um, so one of the biggest questions I always have for people or have always thought about is related to the moon. You have a lot of people that are moon phase people, a lot of people overhead underfoot people, and then you have a few hunters that I've read about in the past, which is like illumination. And so I wanted to kind of get into those. A lot of people don't think about the three different, you know, pieces to the moon, uh, and there's probably even more than that, but those are the, the main three. 
what are your opinions on like each one of those? Do, is there is there one certain thing that you think uh, maybe better than the other? I see you kind of giving some faces here. I so. just this is such spotty and touchy territory, and I'm so very early on. I was of the opinion that it didn't moon had almost nothing to do with moon data. And then I started getting access to data and studies where it seemed to get a vote on the data or on the, on the movement or what we saw in the data. And so again, I would really love to come on your guys' podcast and give you guys all of the answers. My opinion right now is it's in flux, but it seems to do something. There seems to be something with illumination where bucks and again, guys, we could do this podcast in two or three months and I could be of a different opinion. I feel like right, right now, Spartan Forge is we're about a, a thousand, we're, we're at about a thousand years of deer data. In other words, if you were to add it all up temporally, we're at about a thousand years. There are certainly studies where it seems like the moon is getting a vote. I think I'll be more apt to answer this question when we're at like the two or three thousand year mark, which I want to get to. We're working hard. To get towards if i had to take a guess right now and again not being an ideologue and not trying to be someone who has all the answers because i am totally not that guy i my vote would be on illumination in other words when there's a ton of illumination from a full moon during the night deer seem to be more secure or feel better maybe something to do with their eyes or their visibility you know that you know their eyes reflect in you know, when you're driving down the road, you see the deer, you can see the reflection in the eyes. They've got, you know, their eyes are built for seeing at night. So it could be under a full moon, they can see even more and they feel even more secure. So they're feeding more. But then it also seems to affect the transition from dark to daylight and that they're staying out later in the morning during these highly illuminated nights. So my, my, my thought is, and again, it's something I'm trying to work with some universities right now to get suburban deer data where deer have without, excuse me, without a, a ton of full moon, they're still in areas where there are street lights and, and garage lights and there's a lot of light. So I want to look at what movement looks like when there's just more available light because that, that creates another resource for me to compare. You know what I'm saying? Like what does it look like in these areas when there's just a ton of light at night? Are they feeding more? Do they feel more safe? All of that is to say, if I had to place, you know, if you said, hey, Bill, you have to bet the mortgage, what's it going to be? For me at this point, it would be illumination. Illumination seems to jack up to, it seems to affect two things. The amount that they're willing to move at night and then the amount that they are staying in areas of what we call, you know, that on a food plot where they're exposed, they they will or in areas where they feel exposed, like a, a you know feeder or whatever, they seem to stay on those areas later in the morning than they otherwise would because they're not their eyes are very tuned for the light. They're not recognizing the transition from uh, the darkness to the light because the moon has kept it bright all night. And, and again. If you had asked me this question a year ago or even 18 months ago, I would have said, no effect. It's all hogwash. But now I'm starting to see that there is some effect there. Um, and I've even seen studies where, and I, I only have two of these studies, but even when the moon is underfoot and overhead, the deer seem to move more in their core areas. 
So in other words, we kind of talked about it before. Now this again, this is esoteric, but for that, that for that time in their core area, maybe on a normal day where the moon's not overhead or underfoot, they're changing beds five to seven times. I've seen good signs where they're changing their beds nine to twelve to fifteen times. And again, I think it's important for everyone to look at this data on their own. There are good studies out of Auburn. There are good studies out of Texas. There's a good study out of um, um, Missouri, and there's a good study out of Maine about this. That everyone should look up on the read on their own. It seems that moon overhead and underfoot seems to affect, to, seems to make the mancy. But I've seen studies where it doesn't seem to make the mancy. So I guess the important thing from all of this is, is I'm sorry I don't have a clear answer about this. In fact, it seems like my answer is about as clear as mud right now. But, you know, correlation is not causation. In other words, we can't, my guess is illumination. I'm going to stop. I've talked way too much about this. I'm sorry. Every answer is long because I feel like I need to be responsible with my speech and not try to, again, act like a, a dear guru. But my bet is on illumination. If it's, in other words, if it's a full moon and a cloudy night, you're not going to see the late morning movement that you would see if it's a clear night and a full moon. And again, you guys, we could do this podcast in six months and I could partner with two more universities and then I could say, you know, I'm back to not knowing anymore. So that's the truth. I wish I had a good answer. So uh, once you flip over to daytime, have you noticed the difference between, you know, movement related to any kind of cloud cover versus no cloud cover? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that is one I can speak to where it seems like um, – <clears throat> When you see deer choosing bedding in the top third, it's because it's a clear day and there's good thermal generation and they're able to take, they know, I shouldn't say that again. God bless it. Try to be responsible with my speech guys. I know I'm coming off like a nerd right now or like somebody, but I just, I don't want people to say, well, Bill said this and I did this and it didn't work. <laughs> I, I, I want to avoid that. And I don't also want to become one of these guys who speaks in absolutes because when I see these people, these big hunting personalities, and they're all over the place, who speak in absolutes, it makes me want to pull my hair out. I mean, I've gotten to the point where I've had a, I've gotten to the point of watching these people on Facebook and YouTube make these videos where I'm pulling up, I'm, I'm like getting furious, and I'm pulling up data and GPS data, and I'm taking screenshots, and I'm getting ready to make a post, and I'm like stopping myself because I'm like, this isn't the high ground. This isn't how you engage on this stuff. Because people will say, like, you've got to look in the top third. They're going to be up in the top third. They're going to be up here. This is where you need to be. If you're not up there, you're an idiot. And, and so when I see that stuff, I'll be like, here is where a bachelor group from June until August 15th were in bottoms every day of the week. And then when they broke up, the most mature buck in that group remained in that bottom and claimed that territory until October 15th. So please explain to me. How he's spending two thirds of the year in this bottom, and 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 you're telling me if I want to kill this deer, I need to be up in the top third, where he is smelling that I was up there as soon as the sun goes down, and that's why he's there, because that thermal generation stops, and then my scent travels down when I'm leaving the stand, or he's watching me from that bottom, and he's watching me in my flashlight, getting down from the tree stand and leaving, and he's not going down there till he knows I'm clear. Who knows? I don't know. But what I'm saying is I can see in the GPS data that that is not a hard and fast rule. And I see people acting 
and, and telling people to waste their time off these hard and fast rules. And it bothers me because it's so anti-science. And, and, and so again, but you can be, I think you will be successful 33% of the time when you hunt that top third. And that's pretty good. So again, long-winded answer on your cloud question. When it's clear, um, I do tend to see mature bucks are seeing or spending more of their time in that top third because of the thermal, thermal generation from that bottom and they have that leeward wind that is traveling over their back. And that certainly seems to be a thing that they're doing. So, Bill, with the same question, uh, but a little different spin with cloud cover versus non-cloud cover, how does that affect actual movement when it comes to, you know, I guess maybe different points of the season, but if it's cloud cover, are you more likely to see that buck move farther from his bed earlier? Or, do, or does, is that not a factor at all? Or, or clear skies? Yeah. To, again, to be honest, I haven't, I don't see any correlation between cloud cover and moving earlier or later. The moving earlier or later thing, without getting into too much detail, ha has to do more with how many favorable feeding, depending if it's rut or not. We're talking non-rut, in other words, up to like October 21st in the north, and depending on where you are down south, three weeks before your primary breeding phase. So like when you look at the academic literature, let's just say it's November 7th is your peak breeding day right, which is some places in like Alabama. It's a lot of places up in like North Carolina, Maryland. If November 7th is your peak breeding date, then you'll start seeing rutting movement behavior activity around the 21st of the prior month. In other words, about three weeks earlier. And a lot of times you'll see your most mature buck seeking that first um, mature doe that's coming into estrus. I'm not seeing it having a lot to do with movement as it relates to cloud cover as much as when it's pre-rut it has a lot to do with favorable feeding days and the amount of body fat they've been able to aggregate up to that point in time so in other words if they are you know their body probably has a level where it's like hey you need this much body fat to make it through the rut and not die because bucks will rut themselves to death so then that creates an imperative they go and feed and get more fat on their bones during the rut, it's got everything to do with what the does are doing. And the does are moving based on if they've dropped fawns not or yet, and then again, it's favorable feeding days. So now those bucks are queuing on those does. All right, I've got a, a bunch of questions. I'm just gonna go through them. You can do like quick answers. Like if you know them, you know, answer them. If you don't, you know, you can pass. What I guess, what's your opinion like on like barometric pressure? Um, that seems to be like a hot topic, especially, you know, past 10, 15 years. And the north barometric pressure seems to get a vote. And again, it's based on favorable feeding days. So again, the problem with these apps, and I'm not trying to, even if I wasn't developing my own app or had developed my own app, I would still say this. How can I, how can I put this? If you, if, so think about this in human terms. If you've been eating well every day and then a buddy calls you up and says, hey, uh, you know, I've got a gift certificate for a really good steakhouse tonight. Meanwhile, you've been eating your fill every day. You've gained 20 pounds. You know, you've got triple chin. And your buddy calls you up and says, hey, I've got a free steakhouse tonight. Would you come? You would probably be like, if I feel like it or if I haven't got something else going on. But then meanwhile, if you haven't been eating well for the past two or three months or you've been working a lot and you're hungry all the time or you don't have a lot of money in the bank and you haven't had a good steak in a long time and that guy calls you up, and says, hey, do you want to come get a steak with me tonight? You're going to be all over that. 
there'll be no question. Like, of course. And that's where these hunting apps fall short. And I think that's where Spartan Forge shines is the, the neural networks looking at everything leading up to that date. And it's not just looking at the date. You know what I'm saying? It's like that that is the way that we need to look at movement and prescribing movement is and there's no way to do it without a neural network. Like I don't see a possibility. I don't see a way to do it otherwise because there's so many things. There's more things we're starting to plug in the neural network. Like was there a drought there that year? Um what what was the crop like? What is the what is the soil health in that area? How much rain have they gotten? Like all of these things have to factor into will this deer be moving for this one particular storm? So as it relates to barometric pressure, and just to relate back to that point I just made about, you know, your buddy calling you with a gift card for a steakhouse, if those bucks have had, the, the, it's no question, if the bucks have had a ton of favorable feeding days, and the neural network guesses that the majority of bucks have a fair amount of fat on their bones right now, and a storm is coming, overwhelmingly they will sit it out on their stomach. Like that is, that is almost a guarantee. But if it hasn't been happening lately, or there's been a lot of storms lately, or it is the middle of a drought season, or they haven't been getting a lot of rain, or the soil health's not great that year, and there's, you know, barometric pressure and temperature are meeting, then you'll see a ton of movement. But again, it's these apps where they just try to say, on this day, this is what's happening. So er the ergo buck movement. It's like, does anything work like that in nature ever in the history of things? I don't think so. So when I hear you talking about favorable feeding days, what are considered unfavorable feeding days besides like, you know, a storm coming through? Like you're talking about big blocks, I guess, of movement, right? You're having a lot of favorable days in a row and then maybe a lot of, that are not. What are those factors that are making these so unfavorable for the deer? Yeah, so it depends on the area of the country. And again, that's why that, that, that again, illustrates the need for a neural network. <clears throat> um, what makes super unfavorable feeding days in the far north would be like a string of like 15 degree days where it's just so cold that if the deer are not, they need to stay near their bedding area where they know they have cover and they're not being exposed. That's a favorable feeding day. But then down south, um, they will tolerate a, quite a, a bit of rain until it becomes too rainy or too windy. And then that's not a favorable feeding day. Or if there have been two or three hurricanes throughout the year and they haven't been able to put that fat on, that's a non-favorable feeding period. So it really depends on the area of the country that you're in if you want me to define what favorable or unfavorable is. But all you have to think about it is, is the extreme circumstances that would place the deer with all of its evolutionary predispositions at a dis disadvantage to safely go out and feed and feel secure while they're doing it. So for and us, this is the best way to so for us down here in the Southeast, um, if it's in the fall, let's say the hurricanes have done come through in like, you know, your August, September, and like we're in December, let's say, um, the weather fronts are only coming through about like, you know, once every four to five days or so. Um, and they seem to be pretty, pretty regular about that time of the year. Temperatures are fairly, you know, fairly average. Is there something else that's maybe driving these deer to, I guess, stay bedded up versus going out? Yeah, and I mean, there's the cold day? snaps bed them up, and that's in the southeast. Like a lot of people will talk about cold snaps and be like, "Oh, you know, it's, it's going to be 31 degrees this morning in Georgia." And we haven't had 31 degrees all year long. When I look at the the GPS data on a 31 degree day, Mr. Buck is on his tummy. And he's just like, I'm not, why would I, 
I don't know how the, I don't know how to wind this area. I don't know how the thermals act. I don't know how any of this thing works under a 31 degree day. So why go and risk my neck? Yeah. Plus it's going to happen twice this year or whatever is really cold in Georgia. I've definitely, I believe. I believe. Yeah. I've definitely noticed that, especially when we get the cold snaps, if there's a cold frost, everything on the ground's kind of, you know, frosty. Um, it's usually like one o'clock in the afternoon before these deer are like yeah. actually getting up precisely. on their feet. Um, yeah, precisely. And waiting later into the day until it gets to a temperature where that buck knows the area. Because what you've done is, you know, in the military, we call it um, intelligence preparation on the battlefield. But you understand all of the normal circumstances on how you might navigate a battlefield. If something, um, if something comes about that makes the battlefield now unknowable, in other words, it's a condition that you aren't aware of and you can't account for, then why put troops on the battlefield? Why would you do that? It's just a risk. You need to try to deploy your resources and conduct missions under circumstances that you can account for and that you can control. And a, and a wise buck is the same way, a seven, eight-year-old deer. Now, you'll see the two-and-a-half-year-old deer or one-and-a-half-year-old deer all over the place because of cold and they don't know what the hell to do. You know, this isn't their fifth, sixth, seventh season. Whereas that old buck, it's like tummy all day long. Yeah. Another thing that I've noticed uh, is pertains to like a weather front coming through, and that is – I've noticed that like before front, I've always heard like deer will be up on their feet, like just the day before or something like that. I've actually noticed two days before like a front pushes through, you see a really increased movement and then it just slacks off like until the front gets there. Then the front passes through. When that front comes through, it's like you have like a high mile, mile per hour wind day, say like 10 to 15 miles per hour, maybe even higher than that. The deer don't seem to move as much that day, but the first slacked off day as um, far as the wind yeah. is just phenomenal. Precisely, because they know those conditions. They understand those conditions, and that's, again, it's like people like simple answers. And a simple answer is when the weather does this crazy thing, the deer are going to move. And everyone likes that. And then they might see a deer. And, again, it's like this self-confirming presupposition because it's like, if I tell you, you know, I've narrowed it down to this pressure, this temperature, and this wind, this wind amount and wind direction. And if I tell you that, right, and then you believe what I'm telling you, like you, re you read this in like a deer hunting magazine or something, then you will move out to your best stand. And you will be as quiet and as diligent and as slow. And you will not spend the whole time on your cell phone. You'll be looking around. You'll be hyper-focused. And then boom, you've got a self-confirming prophecy because now you've seen a deer that you've been trying to see. Meanwhile, what has not what has changed is not the weather, it's you. Right. And now you've put your you've used your best stand, you've been as quiet and as and as diligent as possible of getting yourself in it. You didn't take your cell phone out of your pocket all day and, and, and you were looking around and you were studying the woods, and then you saw this buck and he was too far off to shoot, but now you're like, boom, that's when I'm gonna see this deer all the time. And then again, you're seeing them in a vacuum and you're and you're narrowing them down to like this one day and this one set of weather period when really it came down to you studied and you saved a tree that you didn't pollute with your scent. And then you got in there super silent with the right wind and hunted it one day. And then you saw that deer. And now you have a it's like a self-confirming prophecy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we we will always save like our best sets or our best spots or whatever we think is the best area. And then when we do go in there, we will act as responsibly as possible and do as many things as possible 
and then we'll see a deer or the deer we thought we were going to see. And then now we've, we can't see anything else. And meanwhile, you've not thought about that you saved that stand all season or that tree all season. You didn't pollute that area with scent. You hadn't been in there scouting since the spring, right? This might have become like a sanctuary area for that deer, for all you know. It could be that as long as you go under that wind condition, you're going to see him every other day that you're there, but you'd never know that. Does that make sense? Like, am I, I feel like I might be, yeah. you guys, I might be losing you guys, but. So, so let me ask you this. Um, I guess there's two ways to look at that one. So is it, you have a stressor for the deer, which they're not, which is abnormal to them and they don't know how to react. Maybe on each side of that is normal, and those are your best sits as far as, like, outside of that stressor? Or do you think that we're – I mean, I can't I can't say that – I've sat multiple stands multiple times in a row through those periods where you had each one, and it definitely seems like on each side of the stressor there was definitely an increase in movement through those areas. But do you think that it's more – on us and what we're seeing or do you think that there's something to that on each side of that stress event for the deer no I, on both sides of each stress event i absolutely believe that there's yes there's a there there as it as it, as it relates to um you know there could be rising or falling a barometric pressure temperatures going down and you, you are hunting the first or last normalized day that's surrounding that event, and therefore you're seeing movement because during the movement, they're going to be bedded down for the majority of it. Um, but a lot of it, right, like the one thing that I can't account for and that the neural networks don't account for and that I can't see in the data, with the exception of people who log when people are sitting places, is the amount of pressure. It's like just leaving places alone is, is also like, can't speak to how much that helps like an area is just to like scout understand the area know where the rub lines and the scrapes are and then waiting like my method for hunting right now is i'll do my early season stuff that's focused around bachelor groups and does getting meat in the freezer and then understanding where my scrapes my community scrapes or what i'm calling we kind of talked about it before what my competition scrapes are setting cameras up near those or downwind of those and then waiting for activity to show up on them and then hunting them when the activity shows up. In other words, I'm staying as far away from them as I can and, and not going in that area or putting a cell camera in there until that moment. So, I mean, it's a really like a mix of all of those things. But in the context of if you are going to use weather to drive when you are going to hunt somewhere and you're just looking at that day of weather, you're doing it yourself a disservice because you're not looking at everything that has led up to that. Again, going back to that situation where your buddy offers you a free meal at a good steakhouse. If you're full and satiated, you're a lot less incentivized to act on that free steak. But if you're hungry and, and downtrodden and you haven't had a good piece of meat in a long time, you're a lot more likely to, to jump on that. So under the situation that you've talked about, if it's been, if you're, if you're not pressuring the place, then absolutely those days are gonna be the best days. But if, if you have been pressuring a place and there have not been a lot of favorable feeding days, then getting in there when uh, prior to or right after a massive storm is probably going to be a successful set. So could you use, like, if if, if you're hunting a, a private lease or maybe public land and you've got a lot of people that are hunting on Saturday and Sunday, maybe even Friday, would, 
would you like suggest i guess to a lot of people to maybe hunt like a wednesday thursday as like uh all of your pressure comes in for the weekend that's like a, a a stressor for these deer and then give it a few days after and maybe they're like easing back into their normal patterns and then i guess something like that maybe yeah i, I mean my thing would be scout as much as you can in the off season and, and get an intimate understanding of that private parcel of land that you have access to. And then wherever you see those, that I'm a big scrape hunter and I love scraping. And as I see deer interacting with scrapes, it just to me is a really good um, method for hunting. Um, my thing would be, and it depends on the property size too, so let's just talk, like, just throw a property size out to me, and then I can kind of tell you what I'm thinking. Bill, this is actually a question, and this goes hand-in-hand hand with what you're about to say. How would you go about approaching what we're talking about here if you had a property that was, say, 100 acres or less versus you were in a lease or on a decent-sized public land that was 1,000 acres plus? And how would that yeah, dictate so how you approach it? 100 acres or less, my friends and I, I would, I would get four or five friends, and I would cover that land and find every scrape I could find out which were the community scrapes or the competition scrapes and the bedding. I would put up cameras in those areas and I would leave that place the hell alone until I'm seeing, you know, a, a, a propensity of daylight movement. And then I would move in when I'm seeing that daylight movement and I would, and I would wait for, well, I'd wait for my app to tell me it's a high movement day or, or what we call a full range day. And then I would hit those scrape lines and I would sit them all day long, especially primary or community scrapes or competition scrapes if i had those if it's a thousand acres of property um I, I i would likely use the same type of tactic only i would bounce or like i would sector the property off so out of thousand acres i'd probably have four different sectors of property and then depending on the wind i would choose sands and sets based on um the prevailing wind and how I'm kind of documenting when I'm seeing deer on certain scrapes because um, scraping and scrape tending and working scrapes um, in my mind has a lot to do with wind direction and and deer are comfortable scent checking scrapes and then working scrape lines or getting in on them um, based on what the wind direction is. So I would sector that property out whereas on the thousand acres if I've got four buddies I would probably say we do an early season set and then we do some mid October to third late October sets. Then we let it cool off until the peak of breeding and we're in there three or four days before the peak of breeding. And again, we're setting scrapes. Now that's just how I do it. Now, if you're talking straight public land, I'm betting all of the time or, or competition scrapes. And that's all I do on public land. So I'm, I'm scout like my public land that I hunt in Maryland and West Virginia. I exclusively get in on the bedding generally in the afternoon, very rarely there in the morning. Um, scrapes, I'm there in the morning. Scrapes, I almost always sit in the morning. But then when I'm sitting public lands, in fact, that's what I'll do. Last year I did it. In the morning, if I have access to private, like I have a golf course in Maryland that I hunt, I'll hunt the scrapes early in the morning. And then I'll transition to public land um, bedding areas in the afternoon just for me is it works well um, because um, you're not going to beat a mature buck into his bed in the morning and if you do he'll wind you 
generally by the way that they move into their bedding, either it's J, they're J hooking or they're doing, they're, they're walking in in some kind of way where if you're sitting over where their bedding is or near where their bedding is in the morning, they're going to catch you. So I will hit scrapes where in the morning they're tending scrapes or working a scrape line or whatever, and they are not as, um, they're not as able to, to wind you. And then in the afternoon, I'll get into those bedding areas super slowly, super quietly. I mean, to the point where I've hunted bedding where I am walking towards the stand at 11 a.m. And it might only be 200 yards in, and I'm not in the tree looking over the bedding area until 1.30 or 2 p.m. As I'm moving so slowly, I'm going so quietly, I'm looking at everything around me as I hang each stick as I'm getting, I stand hunt. So as I hang each stick and I'm getting up there very slowly, I'm looking at everything everywhere. And it can very easily on a 400 yard walk, take me two and a half or three hours to be on stand and ready for like a 4.45, you know, I'm on target. Bill, one question I've had, uh, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, but I'd like to talk to you about it especially when it comes to like early season, a lot of people, you know, talk about early season, especially in some of these states that have these September openers of how, you know, temperature can be a factor. And, you know, that you hear a lot of guys like I'm only hunting evenings, early season. Have you seen any, um, and I know we were just talking about, you were just mentioning about like, you wouldn't want to hunt his bedding area in the morning because most likely when he J hooks in or whatever, he's going to see or smell you on the way in. But it, what, do you see anything in the GPS data that says that you can be successful on morning hunts in early season, or would you still, based off what you're seeing, only focus on afternoon and evening sits? Again, I could be coming to this with bias, but early season, like to me, seems to be like an afternoon type of situation. I'm not saying you can't be successful in the morning. And again, I could be looking at all of this with bias, but, um, just especially early season where you're dealing with a bachelor group or you're dealing with highly patterned deer, like they've chose that pattern because it suits them and it works for them. And when you're dealing with a group of deer or like in North Dakota where the openers are like the first of September, sometimes they're all still in velvet, still bachelor debt. And I look at the deer, I look at the deer data with that optic and it still seems to me like early season afternoon seems to be the time for me. And again, I could be wrong. Like really what we need to do is I need a list of questions from like your Patreon and, and you guys yourselves, because what I do need to, to be able to do this podcast more responsibly in the future is I need to go back and look at these questions with the context that you guys are providing today. Because I can only tell you what I'm thinking, but I, I also know that what I'm thinking comes with pre-programmed bias. So I can tell you right now, my early season sets are all afternoon, almost always. And, and, and my late season sets, I will sometimes do morning, but again, mostly afternoon. But again, I can't say that I've spent a lot of the G time looking through the GPS data trying to challenge that presupposition of mine. I, I, what, one thing I know is my buddy Johnny Stewart, who's on our pro staff, who is a buck murderer, um he kills a lot of deer late season early morning and does really well in like ohio and pennsylvania shotgun or like late season muzzleloader in mornings and so obviously he's latched onto something that i'm not and it stuns me the pictures that he sends me that guy does so well and he's one of the reasons 
in our last podcast, you guys asked me about like the win. If I had to kill like a big buck, when I said early season or late season, he's one of the reasons why I say late season because like the stuff that I've gleaned from him and the way that he sets cameras and the way that he does the late season, like he hits these places that just get murdered from a hunter to deer ratio during you know the the, the you know first gun season or the second muzzleload or whatever you want to call it. But then come January, February, there's nobody in the woods. And that's when he is just slamming deer. I mean, slamming deer. Um, like the stories that he has about like late season deer are just, it blows my mind. Well, one thing I want to bring up as well is, you know, you talk about like early season, say like September, you're focusing on the afternoons. At what point in your season would you start focusing on mornings? And the reason why I'm bringing this up because down here in the southeast, like in Alabama, the earliest portion of Alabama that you can hunt, there's a couple areas that open October 1st. Most of the rest of the state opens October 15th. Mississippi's very similar. Georgia has an early opener. Um, but for some of these other states that might open October 1st, you know, through mid-October, at what point would you then switch over to like, hey, I'm going to try to, you know, some morning hunts based off, you know, conditions and everything else? Yeah, so if I don't know the area, I'm going with three weeks prior to the peak of breeding, and I'm looking for fresh scrapes. So I'll literally do a I'll literally walk the woods looking for the first scrapes. Those are usually associated with the biggest bucks that know what's going on. Not biggest, some of the biggest, the top quarter maybe of biggest bucks that know that there's a doe that's getting ready to come into estrus and they're seeking for that. Like on a seven November peak rock, they're seeking that 21 October to 31 October bell curve of does where they're not seeing a lot of people in the woods they're not getting a lot of pressure and they're looking for that first hot doe. So that, that for me, it's kind of the same thing as like three weeks to two weeks prior to the, whatever the peak of breeding is. Bill, one other question that I've got, uh, which I'm, uh, you know, this is one I've had in my mind for quite a while. Actually, you had brought up the first time we had talked to you, which is wind velocity. And when, in relation to deer movement, also, but also bedding and how that also based off what you learned through the GPS studies, have then transla- translated to boots on the ground hunting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about wind velocity, like higher wind velocities, how you've seen, you know, deer shift a little bit throughout their core, but also how, what you've learned from that to be able to go in and hunt and use it to your advantage. Yeah. I mean, I, I love hunting high wind velocity because I love to try to stop spot and stop. Um, and when it gets, you know, into your top 10 or 15% of your wind velocity over the year, that's when I start seeing bucks choosing different bedding situations that will favor them in a situation where the wind is just crazy and they can't even use it. Like the scent is not, you know, and that's when you start seeing them bedding in areas where they're blocked from the wind. And then that's where I try to, you know, look at a map and look at where the steepest features are, where a buck might have, if I've scouted a bench in one of these areas or something where they're kind of getting themselves out of that wind. So they're not being driven crazy all day long. And then I'll try to spot and stock or like, you know, walk through those areas, still hunt through those areas where I see on a map, this could be a place where a buck is seeking refuge or deer speaking, seeking refuge. Can you talk about, there was a, a hunt in uh, particular that you had talked to me and Andrew about the first time we had called you, where you were kind of using that high wind velocity to kind of still hunt your way through along a ridge, a ridge line. Uh, and it was able to take a buck, uh, shoot a buck off the ground. I guess it was with your bow, I believe, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, a couple, maybe a couple of years ago. Was that the one I, I told you guys? So there are a couple of times where I've done that, but if we're talking about the same one, I believe it was Green Ridge State Forest in like Western Maryland. 
Is that the one we're talking about? It's like a 140 inch buck. Yeah. Is that, yeah. That's it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, basically what had happened was we had like a, a sustained period of like two days of really high winds and there were thunderstorms that happened on the front end of it. And then it was going to be like high winds for like one or two days afterwards, which was really weird. And so I got in there to camp. This was 2017. It was 2017. And basically it was just like a long ridge. If you look at Green Ridge State Forest, people will be able to figure it out. There's like this place called Bell's Knob. And then off of Bell's Knob, there's a long ridge. And and the high wind, I've seen it before, um, just getting up there with binoculars. In the high winds, the deer will just bend on the downwind side of this ridge. And they're just doing it to stay out of the out of the crazy wind. And then there are also like shrubs and trees and acorns and stuff that are along this hillside. And what I knew was there was like a bench on this ridge on the north end of the ridge where a lot I, I'd seen bucks before and I had a lot of pictures of bucks going through there. And with the high wind, like any other time, it would be impossible to get in there. It'd just be very, very difficult to get in there. But I knew with the high wind I could. So I did a spot and sock one morning um, and and had killed like a good 140-inch buck at like 1030, 1045. That was just like on a knob. And I thought he had busted me like two or three times. And I got within 35 yards or so, 30 yards or so. It was, it was a longer shot for me, especially just because I'm not a great archer. And <clears throat> I thought for sure two times that he had busted me. And then when I got in super close... I, you know, you never know what deer can see 320 degrees, I believe. So you never know, like, if a deer's really looking at you or not. But I thought for sure I was busted a couple of times. And then he had, like, stood up, and I thought he was going to bolt, but he was just changing beds. And then he had just gotten quartered away. And I thought for sure the way that I was coming down that my wind was going to catch him, but it never did. And I arrowed him at, like, 30 yards or something like that. And he had tumbled down. Like, the ridge was steep enough that he had tumbled down the ridge. And, um... Uh, you know, super windy day. And that was a place where a lot of deer hung out. And I think they just felt safe there. And I had probably pushed two or three deer or doe that morning. But again, they couldn't like, you know, blow me out of the area or sit there and pound the ground and alert all of their buddies because it was just too damn windy. So, I mean, for me, I really, really love getting aggressive on super windy days. Like it's one of my favorite things to do. Like when you get like a howling, 35 40 45 mile an hour wind in, in maryland when it's like that i try to get within 30 yards or within just understanding the wind and just trying to trying to get it behind you know it's a responsible safe shot of course if i don't think i can make that i won't but especially during the rut in maryland that is one of my favorite you know because i still have that urge to move they're still in bedding situations that where they wouldn't normally find themselves in where they're trying to stay no you know close to does and for me, that's just one of my favorites is super windy, high velocity wind days. And on top of that, I think I have ADD. So I, I don't like sitting in tree stands like I should. So like being able to move slowly and like I count my steps. I'm a super big, I'm a huge nerd about it. I'll be like, All right, I'm going to take three steps and I'm going to look everywhere. I'm going to stay there for three minutes and then three steps, look everywhere and stay there for three minutes. And it'll take me, you know, to cover a few hundred yards. It'll take me in a morning or, you know, into an afternoon. So one thing that I found very interesting, we've got a, a guest, and he's been a guest 
host as well on the podcast quite a few times, uh, Michael Perry uh, from Alabama, uh, who was actually on this past week's episode. And um, he talks about in the areas that he hunts a public land, some of his best opportunities for killing big bucks actually on their feet, especially during the rut, is on very windy days, you know, 30-plus mile-an-hour winds. And it's, he's like, for some reason, they just seem to move. And he's like, you don't see a lot of deer, but when you do see one, it's a big buck. I mean, have you seen anything based off the studies and GPS data that for some reason some of these mature bucks are getting up at those times when there is a high wind velocity today? Yeah, they're still trying to hang around the does. Like, they still need to breed. They're still hanging around the does. And that's kind of what I said earlier was you'll still see them in bedding areas or bedding situations that they normally wouldn't consider themselves or even or, or, or even bother with. But they're doing it because they know they're near the does and where the acorns are and the food is. And they're just waiting for that wind to calm down and then they get right back to work. Or they're doing it while they're while the wind is still going. I've seen that. So, yeah, bucks during the rut are still moving way more than they are on the calmest, coolest, crispest days any other time of the year during that, you know, heightened wind area as long as uh, heightened wind time as long as during the rut. I got a question. I'm trying to think, should I ask on this podcast or should I wait for the next one? Mm. <laughs> I hold it. I hold it for the next one because it's 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 one that yeah. I hold it for the next one. It's, it's a rabbit a, hole. It's a good one. Yeah, but you know, I told you before we get on that we try to keep you around an hour. We're about an hour and a half now. But uh, <laughs> anyways, well, well, for sure next time too. I mean, I feel like I kind of am doing a disservice because you guys have asked a lot of great questions that I haven't been able to provide you answers for. You know, if you guys provide me those, I will do some research and look through the deer data. Whether we do that for your guys' Patreons or we do that for your guys' you know, regular listener group or whatever, I'm happy to do that because, you know, I'm only one dude and I'm not thinking – you guys have had some great questions tonight that make me – like I've written down two where I want to go back and look through the data and try to get the answers to those questions. So I welcome those. So if your viewers or if yourselves, you guys have questions that you want to go through, like, by all means, let's let's do it. Awesome. Excellent. Well, Bill, we appreciate your time tonight. I'm going to go around everybody and see if Andrew got any other questions or anything. Not not for this one. Not for this one. Okay, I, cool. I have a bunch for the next one. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Michael? No, I'm good. Okay, cool. Yeah. Listen, I'm excited. Michael got to put his questions in today. I don't feel as terrible as I did. Hey, Michael, episode. your teacher's on the way, buddy. All right, appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Bill, man, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, hey, I'll let you do a little quick shout-out. Uh, how can guys find Spartan Forge and uh, any new updates kind of coming out uh, since the last time we yeah. talked? Uh, Spartan Forge on Instagram. Um, we are, you know, right now testing and getting ready for the release of our application that will be in iOS and in the, the App Store. We were aiming towards, like, middle of August to get a release. Um, some of our developers, um, not try to, try, trying to air too much out in the, in the public sector here, but one of our developers, um, his father just passed from COVID, and um, – kind of slid our uh, development timeline to the right because um, we're a small business and we only have, you know, so many guys. So we're probably now responsibly more angling towards the first week of September um, to try to get something out. And if we get it out earlier, great. But if we don't, um, you know, it's going to happen when it's going to happen because these are, you know, um, force majeure type events that are outside of our control. But um, as soon as we get this thing tested and all of the fixes implemented that our um, pro staff are working on, the application will be out there, and I'm excited to hear what you all think about it. 
Excellent. Awesome. All right. Well, again, y'all can follow Bill uh, on social media, on Instagram at Spartan Forge. Uh, Bill, again, thank you for coming on. Excited for the next episode. And uh, listen, if you guys are still listening to the podcast, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast because there's going to be, again, I've got quite a bit other episodes that we would like to have Bill a part of if he'd like to take part in them in the future. Uh, But we're very, very excited for some future conversations as well. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Appreciate y'all watching, listening along. And uh, make sure you tune in this week on Wednesday uh, for this outro for this episode. So thank y'all so much. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.